Well, again, uh, we are going to start off this morning looking at the story of a couple of brothers. And their stories are contained in Genesis 38 and Genesis 39, uh, almost as though it was on purpose. They're just one chapter right after the other, as though the writer is trying to highlight for us some key differences and similarities in these two brothers' lives. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of highlight and summarize the story of these two brothers. And as we do, I want, I want to warn you, uh, at times their stories get a little bit dicey. So if you have young ones in the room with you right now, you've been forewarned on that. We're going to try and handle the dicey parts of this in a delicate way, but they're going to be dicey nonetheless. And then after we've looked at their stories, we're going to kind of circle back around and see what their stories have to do with this series that we are in, again, that we've entitled Equipped. So the first of our two brothers, his story is contained in Genesis chapter 39, and this brother is Joseph. Now, this is a Joseph that a lot of folks are familiar with. This is a Joseph who has the coat of many colors. It's a Joseph with the big dreams. It's a Joseph who has kind of the up and down roller coaster life. The Joseph who eventually rises to second in command of all of Egypt and saves innumerable lives from starvation. That's brother number one. And when, when Joseph's story opens up for us in Genesis 39, Joseph really finds himself in about the worst possible circumstances he could. Joseph, in, in Genesis 39, he finds himself a slave in Egypt. And he's a slave in Egypt because his brothers hate his guts. And the most kind thing they could think to do was to sell him as a slave in Egypt instead of just outright murdering him altogether. And when when Joseph's story opens up in Genesis 39, he has lost his freedom, he has lost his family, he has lost his country, he has lost his culture, and he's really lost any hope for any kind of a a decent life moving forward from that point. Joseph's story opens up, he's just in a miserable kind of place. That's brother number one. Now, brother number two is, is Joseph, one of his older brothers, Judah. And when Judah's story opens up, it opens up in about the best circumstances that a person could hope for. Judah has his family and his friends close by. He can lean into their support anytime he wants. Judah has recently spread his wings and he's moved to a town named Adullam. And and in that town, Judah meets a a Canaanite girl who he marries, and they eventually begin to have a family. In fact, they have three sons. And their oldest son, he marries a Canaanite girl as well named Tamar. And it's just a matter of time before the grandbabies are going to start coming Judah's way. For, For a man in his day and age, Judah is living the dream. It's just, it couldn't get any better for Judah. Now, While things start off well for Judah, they don't continue well for Judah. And while things start off poorly for Joseph, they actually move in a good direction for Joseph. You see, we're told that while his story started off really rough, that while his brothers were against him, Joseph had some things going his way. We read this about him. It said, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and that as he lived in the house of his Egyptian master, the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. You see, while Joseph's brothers were out to get him, God was out to bless him. 
while Joseph's brothers had it in for Joseph, God decided he was going to be with Joseph and help him. And Potiphar, the, the, the man who bought Joseph as a slave, he saw this. He, he, he was able to observe that whatever Joseph touched, it just turned to gold. And so Potiphar decided he's going to put everything in his house under Joseph's care. It got to the point where the only thing Potiphar was worried about was his golf game and what he was going to eat next. Joseph took care of everything else, and God blessed every bit of it as he did. Now, again, while, while things started off well for Judah, they didn't continue well for Judah. They, they, they kind of took a turn for the worse. It starts off when Judah's oldest son, uh, he dies. We're told that Judah's oldest son was wicked. And I don't know exactly what he did, but whatever it was, it was bad enough that God himself took that oldest son out. Now, when, when Judah's oldest son dies, that creates some, some issues for Judah in his relationship with his, his daughter-in-law, Tamar. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago when we were working our way through the book of Ruth. In both Tamar's culture as a Canaanite and in Judah's culture as an Israelite, there, there was an understanding that if a woman's husband died before they had any children, that her closest male relative would marry her and provide her with children. So Tamar understands and expects this. Judah understands this. And so what he does is he has his second oldest son marry Tamar. But we discover that his second oldest son isn't much better than the first son. The second oldest son is wicked as well. He's greedy. He is selfish. He is manipulative. He uses people in the worst way possible. And his second oldest son, his wickedness costs him his life as well. So now Judah, who started out with three boys, is down to his last one. And, and Judah isn't terribly excited about marrying his last son off to Tamar because she's kind of turned out to be some kind of black widow and uh, the previous two sons haven't fared too well with her. And so Judah comes up with kind of a plan. To, to, he's going to stall if he can. He tells Tamar, he says to her, listen, the boy's too young to get married, but you consider yourself engaged. And when he gets old enough, I'll send him along. Now here's the deal. Judah has no intention of sending his oldest son off to Tamar. He's afraid she's going to get him killed too. But this is just what he tells her to, to buy himself some kind of time while he can figure out how to save the kid's life. He really doesn't get a chance to think about that though. Because things go from bad to worse for Judah. After his first two sons die, then his wife dies. And all the mental energy, all the emotion, all the time that Judah would have invested in trying to come up with some plan to save his youngest son's life, now it gets diverted and it's all spent on mourning the loss of his wife. So you've got Joseph, things are a hot mess for him. You've got Judah, things aren't much better for him either. And it's at this point that a, a pretty similar temptation enters into both of these brothers' lives. Here's how it worked for Judah. Tamar, she eventually figures out, Judah's not sending that youngest boy along. But, but Judah owes me a child. 
Now, again, remember, Tamar is a Canaanite. Judah is an Israelite. How Tamar can have a child from Judah's family works differently for her as a Canaanite than it did for Judah as an Israelite. See, as a Canaanite, Tamar could have a child and she could receive that child from one of Judah's sons or from Judah himself. Her culture made it legal to get it either way. But, but for, for Judah as an Israelite, it, it, it doesn't work like that. It's only going to be one of his sons. Now, Tamar, she's figured out, she, he's not sending that other boy along. And so she hatches a plan and, and puts it into action that's going to provide her with a child. What she does is she waits until she hears Judah's going to be in town. She disguises herself as a prostitute. And then she sets up shop in a place where she knows Judah's going to see her. Tamar knows her father-in-law. She knows his passions. She knows his vices. And she's pretty sure he's going to take the bait. And sure enough, Judah comes along. He sees this lady of the night, you know, set up for business. He has no idea it's his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And he approaches her and tries to secure her services, if you would. And so they begin to talk, they haggle over price, and they eventually land on the price of a, a young goat. I don't know how that works exactly, but that's the price they land on. And Judah explains, you know, I, I don't happen to have one with me today, but I tell you what, you give me the services and I'll send one along tomorrow. And so Tamar says to him, I'll tell you what, you give me your seal and your cord and your staff and I'll take those as collateral, and then I'll give them back to you tomorrow when you send a young goat. Judah's good with that, forks over the collateral, receives the services that he's paid for in advance, and then they go their separate ways. And all the while, he has no idea that this is his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, the next day, Judah sends along the young goat, but there's no lady of the night there to be found to, to receive the goat. And he doesn't want to look like some kind of fool, and so he just, he just lets the matter drop. Three months later, Judah gets word. Hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's pregnant. And this is crazy ironic, but Judah is furious. He, he starts shouting things like, hey, she's supposed to be engaged to my, you know, my son. What does she think she's doing? This is tantamount to adultery here. I won't stand for that kind of immorality in my house. In my family, we do things differently. And so Judah demands that Tamar be brought out publicly tried, if found guilty, she's burned to death. And she's got the three-month baby bump. I mean, the, 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 all the evidence is right there. So as they're dragging Tamar out to be publicly tried, she sends Judah a note with a little care package. And here's what the note reads. It says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And then you have the care package. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Oops. <laughs> Judah's busted now. And, and, and he's busted any way you slice it. Like in Tamar's culture, he's guilty. He's guilty of withholding his son and, and, and other things that he should have provided Tamar with to give her a child. And in his culture, 
He's guilty. He's guilty of having gotten his daughter-in-law pregnant. All of a sudden, everybody sees Judah's selfishness and his manipulation and everything else. It's just out there for everybody. And the shame that he's going to have because of that, that, that shame, he's going to be reminded of it every single time he sees one of the twins that Tamar will bear him. Twin boys that are going to carry on his family name and his family line. For, for, for Judah, things are just a hot mess. Now, Joseph, his temptation comes again in a very similar kind of way. It isn't just Mr. Potiphar who notices Joseph. Mrs. Potiphar notices him as well. And it's not the good job that Joseph is doing that catches Mrs. Potiphar's eye. It's how good-looking Joseph is that catches Mrs. Potiphar's eye. And, and she decides she wants Joseph to come to bed with her. And so she asks him to do so. And, and though Joseph tells her no, Mrs. Potiphar, she, she's not taking no for an answer. She just keeps coming and asks him for this day after day after day. And, and it would have been so easy for Joseph to, to, to rationalize saying yes. Joseph easily could have said something like, you know, life has been incredibly difficult for me. I've had no kind of support system in the midst of this. I need a break. I need something to take the edge off. Here it is. Or Joseph could have justified it by saying, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking care of everything for Mr. Potiphar. The man doesn't take care of a thing anymore. He's clearly not taking care of Mrs. Potiphar. I'm going to take care of that for him too. Or Joseph could have said, you know what? We don't live in the Stone Age anymore. For goodness sake, we live in modern Egypt. We're all adults here. This is consensual. Nobody needs to know. We're not hurting anybody. We can just do this. Instead, though, Joseph says to her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? But it doesn't end there. Mrs. Potiphar, again, she didn't take no for an answer. And day after day after day, she comes asking Joseph for this. And one day she catches Joseph alone in the house. And that day she doesn't ask, she demands. She grabs hold of his shirt and won't let him go. And so he slips out of the shirt and runs out of the house. And when he does, Mrs. Potiphar is a woman whose affections have been scorned. And pretty quickly, she, she evolves from passion to malice. And she accuses Joseph of trying to assault her. And she's got his shirt as evidence of how, what he left behind when she screamed in protest. And Potiphar comes home and he hears the story and he's furious. We're not sure if it's at her or if it's at Joseph. But Joseph goes to prison where he's going to spend years rotting. For something he never did. 
his life isn't looking so hot at that point either. So, two scenes from the lives of two brothers. Two scenes that in some ways are very similar and in some ways very different. On one hand, you have two brothers who faced a very similar temptation. And that on the other hand, you have two brothers who responded to that temptation in very different ways and, and whose lives unfolded in the long run very differently because of how they responded to that temptation. For, for Judah, Judah, he falls victim to the brokenness that surrounded him. As Judah faced his temptation, his faith really didn't make much of a difference for good. And so for the rest of his life, Judah's deceit and selfishness and hypocrisy, they were broadcast. Everybody saw it. And everybody was reminded of it. Joseph, on the other hand, he didn't fall victim to the brokenness that surrounded him. His faith actually made a difference for good as he met that challenge. And the way that Joseph responded, it, it caused that particular incident to be just one of a number of incidents that when you put them all together, they led to an immensely successful life on Joseph's part. A, a life where Joseph would be able to look back and go, yep, this life was preparation for the next one. Two brothers, some things that were very different and some things that were very similar. So, those are our two stories. Now that they've been told, let's circle back around to our series. Again, we've been in this series that we've entitled Equipped. And in this series, in week one of the series, we looked at a larger passage of scripture from 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And we looked at that passage and we said, okay, in this passage, we're recognizing that life is full of challenges, but Peter is telling us in this passage that God himself wants to equip us with everything we need to, to face the challenges that we do in life and to face those challenges well. And we kind of dissected this passage during week one and we talked about how in verses three and four, Peter's telling us that God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. and Everything that we need to escape the corruption of this world. In other words, we don't have to fall victim to the brokenness that surrounds us. And then in verses 8 and 9, we, we talked about how Peter says that we can avoid being ineffective and unproductive and nearsighted and blind and forgetful. In other words, our faith really can make a difference for good as we face the challenges we do in life. And then in verses 10 and 11, we talked about how we can position ourselves in, in such a way to confirm our calling and election to, to, to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. In other words, like this life really can get us ready. We can live this life in such a way that it prepares us for the next. Peter is telling us we can face the challenges that we do in life and face them well. 
God wants to equip us to do that. And so the question that we've been asking since then is this, how? How does God go about equipping us with everything we need to face the challenges that we do in life and to do so well? And we've said that's where verses 5, 6, and 7 come in. Where, where Peter says to us, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control perseverance and to your perseverance godliness and to your godliness mutual affection and to your mutual affection love. Peter tells us to make every effort to add these virtues to our lives because the cultivation of these virtues is the means by which God is equipping you and me to face the challenges that we do and to face them well. And so what we've been doing in this series is each week we take one of these virtues, we try and define what it is that Peter had in mind. We try and roll around in a real-life illustration of what that virtue is all about. And then we've taken some time and just said, okay, how do we cultivate this virtue in our lives today? So, going back to the story of our two brothers. Those two brothers... Their lives, their stories, they illustrate for us this week's virtue. That virtue being self-control. Because you see, the, the difference for Joseph and for Judah, the difference between how they faced the challenge of temptation and how they dealt with it and the outcomes that they lived with as a result, the difference for them was self-control. And the difference for you and me and the challenges that we face in our lives will be self-control as well. Now, when Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith self-control, just what is it that Peter has in mind? Well, the, the, the term that we translate as self-control in, in our Bibles today, if you were to translate that word literally, it would mean to have power over. To have power over. You, you probably define self-control best this way. Self-control is the place where my passions are my servants rather than my tyrants. Self-control is the place where I have power over the passions that are within me rather than those passions having power over me. For Judah, Judah lived his life with his passions just being tyrants. His passions, how his circumstances impacted his passions, how other people could manipulate his passions. His passions ruled over him. Joseph, on the other hand, it didn't matter how his circumstances unfolded. It didn't matter how people might try and manipulate him. Joseph was going to live in control of his passions rather than letting his passions control him. Self-control is the place where my passions are my servants rather than my tyrants. About self-control, 
Old school Dallas Cowboys coach Tom Landry once said this. He said, my job as a coach is to get men to do what they do not enjoy doing in order that they might achieve what they've always dreamed of. My job as a coach is to get men to do what they don't necessarily enjoy doing so that they could achieve what they've always dreamed of. As people who follow Jesus, we want to follow him well. We dream of of meeting the challenges that life sends our way and meeting those challenges head on and meeting them successfully and meeting them well. Self-control is one of the ways in which God equips us to do that. It's the difference maker. It's the difference maker for you and me, just as it was for Judah, just as it was for Joseph. So what I want to do with the time that we have left is just walk through some practices together, four of them, that are key in cultivating self-control in our lives. So here we go. Practice number one. Ask the Holy Spirit for help. Ask the Holy Spirit for help. It is true that some of the the, the responsibility for cultivating self-control, it rests on us. But not all of it. There's also a a part of self-control that God wants to partner with us in the cultivation of this. God's, God's desire is to meet you and me and in his power, help us cultivate self-control. It's, it's one of the purposes for the Holy Spirit being part of our lives. One of the reasons that God sends his Holy Spirit into our lives is to help us cultivate self-control. The Apostle Paul expresses it this way in the book of Romans. He says, but you are not ruled by the power of sin. Speaking to people who are following Jesus, he says, but you are not ruled by the power of sin. In other words, if you are a follower of Christ, the passions that live inside of you, especially those passions that are prone to to move in a direction that is contrary to how God would have you live your life, Paul is saying those passions, you don't, they're not ruling you anymore. You are not ruled by the power of sin. Instead, Paul says, the Holy Spirit rules over you. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, he can empower you, he can set you free from those things. They don't have to be your tyrants, they can be your servants. Paul says, this is true if the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And then Paul goes on to equate being a follower of Jesus with having God's spirit living inside of you. He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. But then Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus, he says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. That line alone should just mess with us a little bit. It should be so grand that to some degree it should be mind-numbing 
And at the same time, that should give us incredible hope. When we surrender our lives to Christ, God himself takes up residence inside of us. If you are a Christ follower, as John Ortberg would say, you are a God container. God lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. And when that is the case, Paul says, we have a duty then. We have a duty. And our duty is not to live under the power of sin, not to be ruled by the passions that are inside of us. Because if we live under the power of sin, we will die. But, Paul says, by the Spirit's power, you can put to death the sins you commit. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you by his power, you do not have to be ruled by those passions any longer. You don't have to do that. And when you you partner with the Spirit of God that lives inside of you, when you put those sins to death, then you will live. Gang, the, the, the passions that live inside of you and me, they don't have to be our masters. They don't have to be our tyrants. The God who lives inside of you and me, he wants to partner with us in making those things our servants. And, and part of how that works is we cry out to God in prayer and we ask him to help us. Now, that prayer can look differently for you than maybe it does for me. But I know for me, when I find myself struggling with the passions that are within me, I will cry out to God in prayer. And it's, for me, it's as simple as just, God, this thing inside of me, I want to control this but I can't do this in my power alone. But God, you promised me in your word that you live inside of me and that you want to help me. God, give me strength. Give me wisdom. Give me what I need to put this thing to death. Give me the strength to have self-control. You pray that prayer in whatever way you need to pray it. But the the first part of cultivating self-control is crying out to the Holy Spirit inside of us, asking him to help us. He wants to. He's just waiting for you to ask. So practice number one, ask the Holy Spirit for help. Practice number two, avoid tight spots. Joseph illustrates this one for us so, so well. Going back to Genesis chapter 39, we read this. And though she, she being Mrs. Potiphar, though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Notice, Joseph didn't just tell Mrs. Potiphar no. Joseph was intelligent and he was strategic. He made sure he was going to spend as little time around that woman as he could possibly do. Joseph, he... Joseph understood self-control isn't just saying no to the passions I should be saying no to. Self-control is about being smart enough to limit the amount of times that I will have to say no to those passions. Self-control is about strategically putting distance between myself and the passions that I know I should be saying no to. 
In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear examines the science between um, the, the, the science behind establishing good behaviors and breaking bad ones. And one of the most insightful things that he says in his book, it's really simple, but it's at the same time profound. This is what Clear writes. He says, disciplined people are better at structuring their lives in a way that does not require heroic willpower and self-control. In other words, they spend less time in tempting situations. Explores all this scientific research on, hey, how do you establish good habits? How do you break bad ones? And one of his key conclusions is this. People who are really disciplined, they're not the folks who have this heroic, white knucklet, I can stand against anything kind of willpower. They're the folks who are smart enough to stay out of situations that require that. See, the, the application is pretty simple. If I struggle with drinking, I don't go to beer fest. If I struggle with, with how much I'm going to eat, I don't go to the buffet. If I struggle with shopping and how much I'm going to spend, I don't surf Amazon. Because self-control isn't just about saying no to things I should say no to. It's about avoiding tight spots where I'm even going to need to say no in the first place. So let me ask you, for you, what are the things that you struggle to say no to that you know you should? And what would it look like for you to limit your exposure to those things? To, to not even be in the house with them? And how much, how much easier would it be for you to live into self-control if you just limited your exposure to those things. And I get it. Some of us will push back on that and say, well, if, if, I, if I do that, that that's going to cost me freedom. That's going to cost me convenience. And you're absolutely right. It will. Today. Because you see, this is a today versus tomorrow kind of thing here. I can, I can have my freedom, I can have my convenience today, but it will cost me that tomorrow. See, see Jude, Judah, he enjoyed his freedom. He enjoyed his convenience today. And it cost him his tomorrow. And Joseph, he was willing to sacrifice freedom and convenience today for the sake of a better tomorrow. Self-control, it's not just about saying no to what I should say no to. It's about staying away from what I should say no to. Mark Twain had it right. Writing of, of trouble, Mark Twain said, it's way easier to stay out than it is to get out. So practice number two is avoiding tight spots. Practice number three is acquiring new habits. Anybody here ever hear of Stephen King? Everybody, right, yeah. Stephen King is probably the most prolific writer we have seen in our generation. Now, when Stephen King was just a teenager, he wrote his first story. He submitted it for publication. And you know what happened? It got rejected. So you know what Stephen King did? 
He kept writing. In fact, by the time he was a young adult, he had a, a very impressive collection of rejection letters. But at the age of 26, King got a telegram from Doubleday Publishing offering him $2,500 to publish one of his stories. A telegram. I don't know if that's because it was that long ago or because, uh, you know, at 26 with a wife and two kids and a teacher salary and barely, barely able to make ends meet, he just couldn't afford a phone, but that's how it came. All right? But $2,500 for the hardback rights about a story of a young girl with telekinetic powers entitled? Very good. That's right. Uh, you can't see Kat here, but obviously she is a Stephen King fan to come out of the closet now. So, um, so he published the story, 2500 bucks. The, 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 the uh, paperback rights came shortly after that. And then the, the, the movie offer, and then the rest is history. King has been an immensely successful author in our time. And yet, King will credit self-control to one of the reasons why he has been so successful. King says this. He says, I write 10 pages a day, every day, without fail. Every day, even now, King will hole up in his office, he will turn off all the other distractions, and he does not leave that office until he has written 10 pages. 10 pages a day, every day whether he feels like it or not, whether he's motivated or not, whether he is inspired or not, whether he has a desire to write or not, he gets into his office every day and he writes 10 pages and he does not leave that office until he's written 10 pages. See, self-control, part of self-control is saying no to the things that I should be saying no to, but part of self-control is saying yes to the things that I should be saying yes to. There are, there are things that are not going to be good for me that I got to tell myself no to, but part of self-control is saying yes to the things that I need to say yes to. So again, let me ask you, what are the things in your life, good things, that you need to say yes to that you're not saying yes to right now? What are the things that you need to make yourself say yes to with Stephen King-like tenacity? Maybe physical, maybe spiritual, maybe relational. Maybe it's, you know, I'm going I'm to eat healthy two out of three meals a day. Maybe it's, I'm going to give, you know, X percentage of my income away every pay period. Maybe it's, I'm going to read three chapters of my Bible every day. Maybe it's I'm going to work out three days a week. Maybe it's I'm going to spend, you know, X amount of time with my spouse and my kids. Maybe it's I'm, I'm going to serve every Sunday at church if they ever let me come back live again. I don't know. What is your thing that you need to say yes to? Because again, self-control isn't just about don't goals. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Self-control is about some do goals as well. It's not just the negative things I'm going to avoid. It's the positive things that I'm going to go after. What do you need to say yes to? And then finally, practice number four. 
involve others. See, if there are things we are struggling to say yes to, that we know we need to say yes to, if there are things that we're struggling to say no to, that we know we need to say no to, and we're, and we're living in this struggle alone, we're the only one who knows about that struggle, stop it. Stop living life like that. You weren't meant to. I love the way the Apostle James expresses this idea when he writes, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. See, if there's a passion in your life you know you need to say no to, and you're struggling to say no, and you're doing that alone, James is saying to you, stop living like that. Instead, find somebody who's worthy of your trust. Share that struggle with them. Give them permission to ask you how you're doing with it. I'm telling you, when we bring the broken areas of our lives out of the darkness and into the light, they lose power over us. If there's an area of your life you know you should be saying yes to, and you're struggling to say yes, again, James would say to you, find somebody worthy of your trust, tell them about that, and give them permission to ask you how it's going. There's something incredibly motivating, knowing somebody's going to ask me, hey, how are you doing at this thing that motivates you to do it? And, and if you really, if you really want to do well at this, find somebody to say yes or to say no with you. Find, find somebody who struggles to say, to say no to the same thing that you say no to and partner with them in that. Or find somebody who, who, who needs to say yes to some of the same things you need to say yes to and, and partner with them in saying yes. Find somebody who, who will read with you or somebody who will pray with you or who will exercise with you. For example, every year I do a triathlon in July. And, and one, here's, here's the main reason why I do a triathlon in July every year. It's because pastoring is incredibly physically sedentary, and yet it's incredibly emotionally draining. You're, you're, you're sitting there writing a sermon. You're sitting there having a meeting. You're sitting there counseling somebody. You're sitting there trying to figure out a problem. It is so physically sedentary, and yet there's all kinds of emotional drain and demand. And I figured out early on in pastoring, those two things going together, it's not a good combination. I need something physical to work off some of the stress that comes with this. And so I'd sign up for a triathlon every year and I'd train for that thing because it would physically, it was, the training was good for me. I also discovered though, if I have training buddies this works to my advantage. And so I invite everybody I can think of, hey, I'm doing this triathlon in July. Why don't you come do this thing with me? Because I know if other people sign up, I will have training buddies and I will be more likely to say yes to this good thing that I need to say yes to. So on your screen, you should see a slide that's got a little web address on there. And I would encourage you, jump online and do a triathlon with me. Now, are they going to let us do a triathlon for real in July here in Michigan? 
I have no idea what they're going to let us do in July or not, but I would encourage you to sign up with me. And as you do, don't think of it as swimming half a mile and biking 12 miles and running three miles. Think of it as an investment in one of your pastor's health as you do this with me, all right? I just want some training buddies. I will use you for that, all right? It's good for me, and it might even be good for you in the end. So, Peter tells us, make every effort to add to our faith self-control. Because Peter understands, with the challenges that we face in life, self-control is one of the difference makers to whether or not we're going to face those challenges and face them well. So let me encourage you, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Avoid tight spots. If you don't have to be near that thing, get away from that thing. Add some new habits. Don't just say no to things you need to say no to. Figure out what are the good things you need to say yes to and work to say yes to them. And then don't go it alone. Get somebody to do this with you. Would you pray with me, church? Father, just today, as we think about the lives of these two brothers and the role that self-control played in all of that. Father, we just want to, right now, live into this first practice and ask that you would help us. It's different. The passion that rages inside of each of us is different. But right here in the quietness of this moment, God, we want to just acknowledge to you the thing in our life that we need to say no to, that we're struggling to say no to. The thing in our lives that, that we need to say yes to, that we're struggling to say yes to. And Holy Spirit, as you live inside of us, just pray that your power would break forth in our lives to help us live into this virtue of self-control. And Father, for some of us, as we have this conversation, we can't add to our faith self-control. We can't honestly call out to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us because we don't have faith. We've never invited you into our lives. We've never surrendered ourselves to Jesus. But some of us here today, we're ready for that. And so we just confess to you our sin. We confess to you our brokenness. We confess to you that, that, that our passions, our sin, been a tyrant in our lives and we cannot fix this ourselves we need a savior we need jesus and so in this moment we want to put our faith in him in the sinless life he lived in the death that he died in our place and his resurrection that proves everything he promised was true we want to surrender ourselves to following him. It's in his name we pray.
as we continue today, Kat and Ken are going to lead us in worship. Uh, before they do, if you filled out a connection card today, um, we want to encourage you just to, to if, if you didn't, we want to encourage you to do so before we finish. There should be a link in your live stream feed that will connect you to the digital connection card. Again, if we can pray for you, if you made some kind of spiritual decision today, if we can help you in some way, please put that down on your connection card and we would love to help you out in whatever way is appropriate. As we uh, get ready to worship, I want to thank you so much for your generosity, for your faithfulness in giving. If you want to participate in helping support the ministry here at Faith, we would love to have you partner with us in that. There are a number of ways that you can continue to give. You can give online at 4FCC.org. You just go to the website, click on the giving tab there, and you can make your gift that way. You can give through the Church Center app. That's super easy if you've downloaded that app. You can text to give on your mobile device. You simply text the number 84321, put in amounts, and then follow the prompts from there. And of course, you can always mail your gifts directly into the church here. But at this time, I want to encourage you to lift up your voice and worship with Kat and Ken in the quarantunes. 